This episode has been brought to you in part by the Azrieli Music Prizes. Join them in celebrating artistic excellence at the AMP Gala Concert, live from Maison Symphonique in Montreal, happening October 20th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Orchestre Metropolitain will premiere award-winning music by laureates Aharon Harla, Iman Habibi, and Rita Ueda. Learn more at azrielifoundation.org backslash AMP. This is Bonjour Chai, the return to Chuvaland edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto. And David Sklar was not able to join us for uh, parts of the show, but he was here for the main interview. He is, though, still in Calgary. We still are your frozen chosen. On today's show, more Chuva. This time we get some insights from the people, and we get inspired with the rabbis as we close out our sermon slam. But first, Alana... Any, any meaningful moments on Rosh Hashanah? Any meaningful moments? Um, I think the meaningful moments for me this year were more around spending time with close... I mean, the, I got to meet some of my partner's extended family and spend time with uh, the people that I knew from his family. So it was, it was a very insular experience. We had, like, you know, a small group on the first night, a larger group on the second night. Yeah, I am looking forward to a more reflective Yom Kippur. I feel like this holiday for me this week was a lot more around the food and the people. And even though I did go to Shul, I feel like I didn't have that moment that I was looking for. And I I hope to get that next week. What about you? That works. Um, I had a nice prayer moment. Um, I had, uh, you know, I was, I think it's the first time in many, many years but I wasn't in and out of services because of kids or because I was leading something where I just got to sit in a pew from, you know, basically just shortly after they started at 7.30 in the morning and I didn't leave till noon. Uh, it was nice. It was it was a really, there were some nice reflective moments. It was nice to be sitting with a sidur in front of me or a machzor and just praying um, for an extended period of time. Um, but look, when, when you have Rosh Hashanahs for so many years and you have this also, like you have some better ones and you have some worse ones and um, you have ones where you're intensely meaningful and you have ones where you're not thinking about anything at all because you're busy even pre- occupied with other stuff and maybe Yom Kippur is better and maybe the reverse is true. You have a great Rosh Hashanah and a Yom Kippur that, you know, your hunger is preventing you from focusing and thinking about anything else and that's okay and we we get other ones in the future hopefully to to redo and to to deal with it my tshuva this year is where i think uh you know uh last year we spent a lot of time on the show thinking about the national day for truth and reconciliation um as really as the first one this year it's coming up this weekend it's uh on uh, it's on friday and uh i've been thoughtful about it all year as a form of national tshuva especially you know um whether you like it or not um whether you think that it was enough or whether or it wasn't when the Pope came and apologized, um, you know, to, you know, indigenous people, that's still something really big and meaningful. And as a Jew, I, it resonated with me. You know, I actually thought that we'd have a chance to talk uh, more about this. Um, maybe we will in a future episode, but I think that there's still a lot there to be unpacked um, around the time of Chuva that, um, you know, now all of a sudden Canada has created a sort of a, a national Yom Kippur. Yeah. That's, that's really been on my mind that if the world can recognize and start doing Chuva, um, it's definitely our responsibility to get into a personal um, moments with that. I'm definitely on board with all that. I personally, um, I don't know that I go into the new Jewish year or the secular year um, with resolutions. Mm -hmm. Um, I know some people do it. To me, it feels a little non-Jewish. 
Um, though I, I can totally get on board with what you just talked about, and I think that's extremely important. Um, I think I use the time more uh, looking back on my year to see what did I do well, um, what did I work on, where am I now, and kind of what energy do I want to bring into the new year as opposed to setting specific goals. Yeah, yeah. I I think my issue with resolutions, the New Year's resolutions that are classic that everybody goes towards, are um, they're, they're universal and they're universal because they're very hard to work and they're very hard to do and to achieve. Yeah. Everybody wants to get more active. Everybody wants to lose a little bit more weight. Everybody wants to be more mindful and spend 10 minutes a day meditating. Everybody wants to get their aid, right? All of these, everybody wants mm-hmm. to give more charity, all of this stuff. Um, and yeah. what I think the, what's wonderful about the Jewish approach is that you really have to ask yourself what's personal. What are the things that I mm-hmm. care about that are important for me? Not just those things that, yes, are, are big. I can look back in the year during the month of Elul where I can say, what did I do that was, you know, a certain moral failing? What was something that I know I should be doing better that I used to do better or that I wish mm-hmm. uh, I see everybody around me is achieving and is doing good at and that I'm not necessarily hitting those those levels, mm-hmm. how can I work on that and make it happen? Um, so, you know, in that sense, I really, there's something there um, that is uniquely Jewish about the way in which we do tshuva that I like and maybe um, should be approached by the uh, non-Jewish world in a different way. But uh, that's that's my tshuva moment. And that's what I've been thinking about and what I will continue to think about as we move through till Yom Kippur. Let's get to our panel right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. So we're right in the middle of Teshuvah season. You know, last week before Rosh Hashanah, we did our own Teshuvah in the month of Elul, seeing as the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are called the 10 days of Teshuvah, we thought it would be a good time to spend some more time thinking about this. This time, though, we wanted to go to the professionals, right? So before we get ahead of ourselves, let's define this Teshuvah thing. It's often translated as repentance, and that is definitely the central feature of it. But as many sermons will remind you, the Hebrew root of the word comes from the idea of returning. As in, tshuva happens when you stray from your roots, from the path you should be on, and return to where you were, or where you always wanted to go. And while tshuva is often a lifelong process for many Jews, some of these Jews actually define themselves by their tshuva experience. You may have heard the term bal tshuva or choser b'tshuva before. These are people who turn to an orthodox lifestyle, often after a secular upbringing or an observant life in a different denomination. To be clear, we here at Bonjour Chai do not think that orthodoxy is the only way to have a tshuva experience or to have a meaningful Jewish life. It's just that Orthodox Jews have made tshuva into an integral part of their identity, some of them at least, and figure that this might be a good place to start to think about tshuva on a personal level. So here to speak to us today are three Canadians, each with their own tshuva journey, to share their stories and hopefully help us move forward on our own paths. Melanie Notkin is the author of Otherhood, Modern Women Finding a New Kind of Happiness, and Savvy Auntie, The Ultimate Guide for Cool Ants, Great Ants, Godmothers, and All the Women Who Love Kids, as well as a lifestyle brand uh, by the same title. Ruth Chittis is the director of Hillel 
at York University, and Kasriel Silver is working in title insurance at Madison Commercial Real Estate Services. Welcome all to Bonjour Chai. Thank you. Thank you. Um, why don't you start by um, sharing with us your personal uh, Jewish journeys, um, however briefly, some of the relevant points. Melanie, why don't we get started with you? I grew up in a traditional home, Shabbat dinner, went to day school, Salman Schechter, Herzliya in Montreal. And um, my mom passed away when I was 19. I was still at, in Sejep, Marianopolis. And uh, slowly but surely, I became more observant in my early 20s um, and ended up moving to New York City because that is where People, religious girls, young women go to hopefully find their match. I have yet to find that man, wherever he is. Um, but, and as I got older and older in New York, even though I worked actually in outreach in Kiruv um, for NJOP, National Jewish Outreach Program, and helped produce Shabbat Across America and Read Hebrew America and all these ways for people to come back, I was slowly walking away because the older you get as a single woman, religious woman, it becomes harder and harder to feel a connection to the community and, frankly, harder to date men who don't only want to eat in a kosher restaurant and or keep Shabbat. So it's been a few years since I've been observant. Awesome. Ruth, why don't you tell us uh, about your journey? I guess very briefly, I grew up in Toronto in the Jewish parochial system. I went to Bialik. I went to chat. Um, I think like um, my friend's father says, if you really want to make sure your kid doesn't become super orthodox, send them to Jewish day school. <laughs> um, so I was totally anti-religion leaving that system. I mean, maybe we can talk a bit more about why that happens to a lot of Jewish folks on this podcast. That would be interesting. But I, I left and then I went to Queens University. I made a point of not having Jewish friends. I really wanted to get out of like this Jewish ecosystem that in my mind felt kind of toxic. And then I went to Israel. Um, I had gone there many times. My family, a lot of my family lives there. And I went to a seminary called Neve Yerushalayim. Won't get into how I got there, but I went there. Um, and I became actually quite observant um, in terms of dress and, and how I ate and, and religious practice. Like I joke like fasting on a minor fast day means you're like really in it. Um, and then a year later, I went back to another seminary where I um, called me Dresha Rachel Vahaya. Um, also in Jerusalem, and I kind of flipped out there and was like, whoa, this is not it. This is not how I want to live. Um, and I've kind of, uh, I went, I jumped around, I went to Pardes, um, and I ended up studying for a year at the conservative yeshiva uh, with my partner, and um, I've landed in this weird kind of non-denominational space, but um, coming from a very, very non-Orthodox family, any kind of religious practice um, is different and, and a step in a different and more intentional direction. Uh, so I actually grew up in Mississauga, and um, I went to public school, and there was a reform temple there that I attended, and I was very involved. I was involved in the youth group. I uh, went to Hebrew school on Sundays, Tuesday nights, ended up teaching school, Hebrew school and bar mitzvah lessons. So I was very involved as a kid in the reform community uh, as president of the youth group. But that's all my exposure um, because I lived in Mississauga. Um, when I went to university at McMaster, it was my first time being exposed to other types of Jews, other backgrounds, Jews from Toronto, Jews who had gone to day, Jewish day school. 
And uh, that led me on my journey of just, you know, learning more about it. I was president of Hillel, president of the Israel group, uh, just learning more about different backgrounds. And uh, from there I went, I became more religious and I went to Yeshiva in Eretz Israel. And uh, I actually lived there for 17 years and just recently came back. So, uh, yeah. I have a question. Let's start with Ruth first. How did you perceive a more religious Judaism or a more orthodox Judaism before you yourself became uh, more observant in whatever time period that was? And how much was that mirrored in maybe the way people perceived you becoming more religious? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think I perceived it as something really confining, something archaic, something that was um, ultimately really theologically driven, um, which I actually don't think it needs to be, something that was very, very um, limiting in terms of your your access to information and social life and and marital life and all the other parts of what I associated with secular life um, in today's world. And and I think for my family, they, they reflected back on me the exact same feeling of like, it's a mythical, confining, very constricting, very limiting practice that is dated, and um, they didn't really understand. And then what surprised you, if at all, when you were part of that uh, community? Um, I think what's really surprising for a lot of... I don't know if this is true for FFBs or from from birth Jews or Jews who grow up Orthodox. I don't know if they feel the same way, but for a lot of people who come at it later, there's an intentionality to it that I think is really interesting and actually quite expansive and that people's journeys can look very different from each other, both from the perspective of how they view God or divinity or theology and also from the perspective of um, what that practice actually looks like. Um, that's actually one of the most wonderful things about Judaism is that even within different sectors, there is such um, a diversity of thought and practice and that all of those can exist and be true. Um, and that complexity is really overlooked, I think, when we're like, why are they wearing that hat? <laughs> or like whatever it's reduced to, that's kind of not very thoughtful. Uh, Kariel, I know you said you grew up in the reform movement, so I'm curious sort of what you found was maybe lacking or what you found that didn't didn't go far enough for you that you wanted to look more into the Balchuva movement and, and what you found there. Well, I guess for me, it, I had never been exposed to anything else besides the reform movement, besides the temple that I went to. So there wasn't much structure after, let's say, your bar mitzvah, you know, the even school went up to grade 10, I think. But after that, it was kind of just do your own thing. There was no structure. There was no real, like, I always wanted to learn more. There was just no community for that. Um, you know, I taught in the Hebrew school. I, ta I did a lot of things. But, you know, my friends, we went to public school. My friends weren't really interested, my Jewish friends. And, um, you know, it was a very kind of, um, there wasn't a lot to it, you know. Um, how do you or did you ever use the language? Do you ever use the term Balchuva? Have you used that before? Um, and um, what? how do you think about it now? And have people ever approached you as sort of saying, can you help me about Shuva as somebody who does this all the time? Um, Katriel, why don't we start with you? Um, so I definitely use that term because I'm a Balchuva. I'm happy to be, proud to be, I uh, love it. Um, have people approached me? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, we came from... 
over 20, about 20 years ago. And, um, you know, I went to a Balchuva yeshiva in, in Jerusalem. So, you know, you get to help out a lot of guys, you know, just, you know, it's like more of a friendship thing as a group of people that are praying together, that are learning together, that are growing together. You know, and even today, you know, I meet people, secular Jews that are interested and they have lots of, they always have lots of questions and I'm happy to answer, especially because of my background, I'm able to, you know, understand where they're coming from and uh, relate to them. Excellent. Uh, Melanie, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I certainly did. I became more observant, like I said, in my, you know, let's say 21, um, so in my twenties and thirties, definitely. And again, you know, when I worked in an organization, um, that did outreach and I would have Shabbat dinners and Yom Tov dinners in my apartment and have guests who didn't, you know, Bale Chuva, who didn't have a place to go. Um, I definitely, you know, was friends with women and, and guys who were coming up, um, more newly Bale Chuva, um, and was obviously encouraging and, and welcoming. Um, but now I, you know, it's, it's interesting that you ask, because I don't think I've used that moniker for myself in years, maybe over a decade. Um, because I'm, A, I'm not, I, I've kind of gone back to, not even kind of, I'm, I'm likely the same way I was when I grew up in Montreal. So, no, people don't come to me for that anymore. And in fact, I'm, I'm not active anymore in the community. I'm just, you know, that's another issue is as you get older and remain single, certainly a woman over 35, 40, 50, um, it's harder to find a place within the Jewish community where you feel like you're not a single childless woman. And why do I want to put myself in that place? Ruth, I'm, I'm wondering if there was ever sort of a, a coming out or coming out of the closet moment for you on your journey when you sort of said, this is who I am. This is I want to embrace this. And if you if you had to sort of come to your family and your friends to explain this, what was that like? Um, by the way, I think the term Balchuva is, is not a good term. I want to just add that. I think it's a bad term. I what what what, I, what term should I, I be agree? Using? But I want to hear your answer first. I think it uh, it implies that there's a destination that you're headed, that we're all headed in the same mm-hmm. place. That there's this like thing that you're achieving, that you've left something that you're mm-hmm. going back to. That I also don't think is true. That um, it's like the off the derech, on the derech, so on the derech road, so on the road, off the road. That whole language mm-hmm. of like you're in, you're out, you're there, you're you're. It's very divisive. And I work with Gen Zs and younger generations of Jews, and I. Think I think that language is going to become so much less palatable and so much more on the margins of Jewish life of like, you're really observant. Maybe that language will still be used. Um, and we can talk about why, why that is. But I think, I think most Jewish folks growing up in a reasonably connected Jewish life will not find those terms palatable. And for the coming out mm-hmm. question, um, I don't love that language because I think it like is a bit also, um, I think for folks who are coming out in terms of their sexuality or, or gender identity, that they're, that's like not, it's not a comparable experience. So I just want to name that and be careful. But I do think that with non-Jewish friends, interestingly, it was almost much easier. And I found that super interesting. I can like relate my, to that. Yeah. Like my Jewish friends oh. were like, what the heck is wrong with you? <laughs> 
my non-Jewish friends were like, that's interesting. What's that scent you're smelling? Witchcraft. <laughs> yeah, no, I can totally relate to that. Um, I grew up religious, stopped for about 10 years and recently started again about lo- a year ago or- around this time. Um, and I found that my Jewish friends were more like, oh, why did you decide to do that again? Weren't you more free when you weren't doing that? And now isn't it going to cause all these problems? And then my non-Jewish friends were like, ooh, Shabbat, tell me what that is. So what, what is that stigma then within the Jewish community that if someone is going towards this, that we're thinking, what, we're not good enough in our denominations of reform or reconstruction or conservative? Why do you have to take that next level? Is is that, you think, the line of thinking? Totally. Melanie, I, I see you. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the term off the derach, I agree with you, Ruth. Um, I find it, I'm really turned off by it. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting his name, but he was later named a lord the 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 gentleman who was jewish biologically who created the the kinder passage and saved um you know hundreds of jewish children um during the holocaust he his parents were uh, off the derech they were no longer no longer even jewish and because he didn't have wasn't known as a jew he was able to save so many Jews. So who are we to say who is off the derech? Who's derech? If it's Hashem's derech, then it's Hashem knows what he's doing. Who are we to judge people? Who are we he? to judge what he? the fate not is? Not he, right? I prefer they. Who, not he. Um, not he. But anyways, she, um, they, God. however yeah, it is Hashem. God. But anyways, um, go ahead, Alana. No, I, I agree. There's something that really rubs me the wrong way with when people say they're off the derech, because I really think it implies there's only one way to feel connected as a Jew. And I just don't think that's true. Like, I, I think we should all be defining our own paths. That's all. That's all I wanted to say. Okay. Well, I was going to follow up on that. Um, you know, I had a rabbi uh, growing up who used to say that there's there's no such thing as a balchuva, right? And and the classic ways are nowhere. You know, we're all balay tshuva. We're all trying to be more observant. We all do tshuva around Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and any other time of the year. But he went and said, "Listen, you're a balchuva the moment that you choose to take a different path in in life, and after that, you're just like everybody else, right? You're just you know you're you're in your own process." Um, but I, you know, the, I think it goes deeper than that. I think that what we seem to be bringing up here is that there is no single path. I like the, the language a lot of people use now is a, on a different derech, right? As a, as opposed to on, on the off or on or, or whatever to, to, to recognize that there are multiple paths available. And I also, I think, you know, I, I remember having a moment myself where I realized that, um, there wasn't just one way to be. Kishore, you haven't said anything in a while. I'm, I'm curious if you have some thoughts on this. Well, I have different opinions on a lot of the things that were just said. But, um, I mean, I think that tshuva is universal. I think that that we do have uh, a roadmap in front of us how to be a good Jew, what God expects from us. I feel that the rabbis, um, our leaders, will help us, direct us on what the best path is, what that individual path is for each person. Um, you know, I don't feel that it's necessarily choose your own adventure, but I do believe that, yes, you know, each person has their path on how to come back to Torah and God. I mean, when we say tshuva, when we say bal tshuva, it's more coming back to God, coming back to Torah and the source. You know, it's not necessarily joining this certain club this certain shul, but it's definitely, you know, going back to God, 
going back to Torah. I wanted to say about outreach. Actually, that's why I, I say NJOP, um, and then I share the full name. I was the one there who said you can't say outreach in the name because then it's much harder to reach people when you've already decided they're not in the community. So that's why it became NJOP. So I agree with you, Avi, on that. And and in terms of um, you know the being off the derech, et cetera, in the 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 story of the binding of, of Isaac, Akedat Yitzchak, we know that, you know, Avraham um, actually doesn't wrestle with Hashem. He's, be, he's ready to do it. Whereas his grandson, Yaakov, Jacob, is, does wrestle with the angel and does wrestle with God. And he's the one who gets the name Israel. I think that those who can keep wrestling with their Yiddishkeit, with their belief, with their faith. In fact, it comes up because a friend of mine, he was not religious at all, and I were talking about it, and he, this this whole parsha, um, actually the story really upsets him. And I say, the fact that you keep coming back to wrestle with it, actually, I think, makes you more righteous than many Jews who never do. It's It's wrestling with the faith that I think is what connects us as opposed to just going around, just following the rules and not really connecting necessarily with everything, all the layers around it and within it. That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think following the rules has to contradict wrestling with it. A Jew, I believe is like someone on an escalator that, you know, anytime a person stops on an escalator, you're going down, you know, a Jew is meant to be all their life. Um, wrestling with the Torah, wrestling with their Yetzirah, wrestling with how can I be a better Jew? How can I be a better person? How can I serve myself, my my community, my creator more? You know, that we're always supposed to be wrestling until, Rabbi say, until 120, until a person is no longer on this earth. We have potential to go up or down, but it takes uh, it takes hard work. And, and just from a personal level, the the personally, the word outreach doesn't bother me at all. And this is coming from uh, someone who grew up 100% secular in outside of the Jewish community. Um, if I ever saw the word outreach, it would never bother me. You know, I realized that I grew up with only a tiny piece of Judaism in terms of uh, what I was exposed to. I never saw from person. I never saw a kippa, uh, like a kippa wearing person. And I saw once in my life until I got to university. And even on campus, there was only one kippa on campus. Um, so the word outreach never bothered me. I was always looking to learn more. Um, so for me, it's, it's not a big deal. Ruth, uh, I know you brought up early on in this conversation, the fact that, you know, when people are going to Jewish education and going through Jewish schooling, they sort of become disassociated with it right away. Um, and, and I was curious, I mean, I have my thinking for reasons why that once you graduate from a Jewish school, you sort of say, I want nothing. I want no part of this. I don't want to, I don't want to continue this journey. I'm curious, what are your thoughts behind that? I mean, I don't know how, uh, Harif, how spicy we can go here, but, um, you can go, with, let's full let's spice, spice it ghost, up. Go, that, ghost pepper, yeah, ghost Carolina Reaper Carolina spicy. Reaper <laughs> um, okay. Um, not good for the Ashkenazi gut, but I'm going for it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I think that, um, honestly, the it's like kind of like the Haggadah. I know this sounds really random, but it's going to make sense in one second. Basically, the old Haggadah, you sit around, you read that book, you're like, I'm sorry, by the way, if this is offensive to folks. I don't mean it in a pejorative way. I just mean it to like think about um, 
whether a, some of this stuff might come across as a bit stale to young contemporary Jewish people living in the West of like, this is not at the level of intellectual rigor, of thoughtfulness, of interest. It's not being made contemporary for young minds who are exposed to all these different things living in a modern world. So I almost understand how for people who aren't exposed to it as in their youth and then come to it through a more orthodox Kiruv movement that is, as Catriel described, full of excitement. And there's an energy to it, regardless of if you agree or disagree, they have a passion there that I think resonates with people. And that doesn't really, that passion, that energy and curiosity that make being Jewish, I think, amazing really doesn't exist in Jewish parochial systems, almost across the board, I would argue. Um, I have a, th- I have a yeah. thought on that because this is I've lived in so many different places. I've lived in Montreal, Toronto, New York, and Vancouver. Very different communities, very different school systems. Not that I went to school in all those places, but I've met a lot of people who've gone through them. And I guess I want to direct this at Melanie since you moved from Montreal to New York. How did moving locations change your connection to Judaism or uh, observance? Like, what did you notice that might have been different or made it easier or harder in, in each place? Well. When I moved to New York, I think I was 23, 24, and I moved into, you know, the singles community on the Upper West Side, which makes it so much easier uh, not only to find religious community and people very similar to you, um, but also even just moving to New York in general because you have friends built in. Um, so, you know, it's, it's two different stories, I think. You know, in, in Montreal, um I was able to find community right away. Um, I l- grew up in, in Snowden and found, you know, community in Cote St. Luke and Hampstead um, and even Westmount. But I, you know, New York in some ways it make, made it easier. Um, certainly the number of kosher restaurants made it easier. Um, and as far as my schooling, I went to Salman Schechter Herzliya. And I, and I think what happens is that it's kind of like a bar mitzvah when you graduate, where you take your your Judaica, all your books, and you kind of close them for the quote unquote last time and say, "Okay, I graduated, I'm done." And you know, we we sort of leave those books behind as opposed to it being a real commencement. Where actually now you have the tools to be a Jew. Now now you have all the all the information, not all, a lot of the information you need to start living as a Jew independently now that you're 17, 18, etc. Um, but instead, Jewish kids often in Jewish day school often see it as, okay, I'm done. Um, I did my part. So I think that the struggle, uh, the challenge in Jewish education, and again, it's a long time since I graduated high school, is to how to keep the connection um, between graduating day school, whether it's elementary or high school, and and moving on further. You know, there's something here that um, you know the um, the distinction I'm I'm hearing though between what Ruth is saying, what Melanie's saying, and what Katrill might be saying is that the um, 
as a kid, it's very hard to get into something which is really abstract and complicated and high level. And as an adult, you you get it. And you know, I I, I would imagine because you're going to tell me that your kids have a wonderful time in yeshiva or in whatever school they're in because they they're learning all this stuff and it's wonderful and it's great for them. But they're not necessarily exposed to the full you know what's out there you know, in the world. And it's hard to compete with sports and with movies and with pop culture. Um, then with Judaism, I would imagine that evangelical Christians and uh, Catholic school and young Muslim kids all have the same struggles that teenage being, you know, young in a parochial system is going to be hard to, to get into. Um, but then again, do we need to, you know, completely close ourselves off in order to say that this is the only thing that happens? Or do we wait and say, you know what, being a serious Jew is only for somebody who's in their 20s and beyond, because that's when you get to understand things better. Um, I'm not sure how to, you know, get into that. Go, Alana wants to Yeah, well, I, 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 I want you to respond but, to that, Katriel, because I know Avi made some sweeping suggestions of what might be going on, but I want to hear it from you. Well, just a few impo- uh, distinctions that you know, when I was in McMaster, um, again, I was still not religious Jew then, but I was very involved in Hillel. I was involved for five years with Hillel, and I was president of the Hillel, president of the Zionist group. The Jews that we could not get at, to come out to most of our events were all the Jews that we went to chat and all the schools that were uh, Jewish day schools. They were the Jews that wanted nothing to do with Hillel. And the the different I remember Rabbi Zachariah Wallerstein's that's all he said that Shabbos is not meant to be a course. You know, there's no such thing as failing Shabbos. A person gets a, a failing mark on their Shabbos course. Shabbos is meant to be a lifestyle. Shabbos is meant to be something that's taught and it's a beautiful thing to teach. It's not supposed to be a textbook that people study for and they do tests and they f- pass or fail. And I can understand why these people that went to these Jewish day schools um, where it was taught as a as a course and not as that necessarily something they're living, why they can come out from it um, with a bitter taste and not really, you know, just like I was forced to do uh, complicated math c- courses that I didn't enjoy, that I wasn't going to use. And then as soon as I finished the course, I threw out the textbook and I moved on. So, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me in that way. Um, you know, but the last thing with, about my kids and about kids in general and in more in the, the religious system, you know, first of all, the rabbis, everything is taught on different levels. At, when they're kids, they're taught on a, chi- a child's level. When they're teenagers, my kids are becoming teenagers now, they're taught on a higher level, you know, and things are appropriate per their age. Um, so it is much harder when you're born into it to keep the excitement, but just like the things I did with my kids for Pesach when they were five years old is much different than when they're 10 years old and it's much different when they're 15 years old. So the cha- you change in the, the teachings and the lessons and uh, as I, they get older. I would older. have to say that it kind of goes back to an earlier episode that we did about Jewish education specifically. And my thought, which I think is the same on this topic, is that it really comes down to what you're doing at home, which is totally what you were just saying, because... If I didn't have the home life, the religiousness I was learning from a very young age, I wouldn't have um, come back to it because it wasn't as embedded for my friends as it was for me because they weren't practicing it at home. And I think that actually is what makes a difference. And that is what made it meaningful for me. Ruth, um, any closing thoughts, piece of advice, some tshuva um, wisdom um, for our listeners as we uh, get ready for Yom Kippur? Um. 
My biggest thing is try to make it a joyous, not guilt-ridden experience. I think Judaism needs to go light on the guilt and more on the joy to sustain itself. And so I wish you a joyous Shuba season. And thank you for having me. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Melanie, any final thoughts or ideas about Shuva for our listeners? I love what Ruth said, and I agree uh, wholeheartedly um, that we shouldn't look to Yom Kippur as something dark and something that will bring us down, but rather something that hopefully will enlighten us and uplift us. And, uh, you know, shedding all of that, uh, what Catriel earlier called resistance, all of those things that keep us um, from moving forward with our lives, hopefully we can shed a lot of that and keep moving forward and, um, and feel connected with Judaism at whatever level to whatever degree and, and with God again, the same. Excellent. Katriel, uh, final words about some idea about Shiva. I think the main idea, like has been said, is that this isn't a time to get depressed. This is a time that God just wants a relationship with us. God wants to be close and wants us to be close with him. And, you know, we have to just, I want to just look at my life and see what little areas I can work on um, that are getting in the way of that. But God loves us all. God loves us so deeply. We can never understand how much he loves us. And he's willing to overlook anything um, to have a relationship with us. And if we focus on that, he's our loving father. He just wants a relationship with us. That should help us and get more out of the day than we usually do. Amazing. Thank you all. Uh, Melanie Notkin. Ruth Chittas and Katriel Silver, thank you for being on Bonjour Chai, and we hope to have you uh, on any time for any other topics or any wonderfulness. And now for the closing round of our Sermon Slam. We had a great time putting this together this year. We hope that you found all the sermons inspiring. We can't wait to announce a winner, and we want to hear who you thought was the standout sermon. Send in your votes to bonjour at thecjn.ca and stay tuned for October 20th when we will announce a winner. First up is Rabbi Steve Wernick, ordained at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Reb Steve, as he is known by his congregants, served for many years as the CEO of the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism. He was instrumental in the effort to create a permanent space for pluralistic and egalitarian prayer at the Kotel. He was named one of the Newsweek's 50 Most Influential Rabbis in America and on the forwards list of influential Jewish leaders. Since 2019, Reb Steve has held the role of senior rabbi at Beth Sedek Synagogue in Toronto. His sermon is about the Yisker service. His own mother, Miriam Devora, died at 29 years old when Reb Steve was just two. In 2019, the year Reb Steve first gave this sermon, he stumbled upon and read for the first time a diary his mother had kept when she was 20 years old. Through it, Reb Steve at 52 got to know his mother for the first time. Here's Reb Steve talking about how his mother's memory has shaped him and his family. The wisdom of our tradition is that it recognizes that on our most important holy days, we will naturally remember those who are no longer with us. We note with sadness those whose seats next to us are empty and those whose presence is missing. Yisker is for remembering. Except in my case, these are not my memories. These are my mother's. I know that I am not the only one in the room who remembers family with the help of others. This diary is a gift I feel privileged to have it and to have had an opportunity to learn about my mother's passions, pursuits, and relationships. 
In doing so, I feel as if I can confidently say that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It falls directly under it. Though I will never be able to learn from the wisdom of her old age, that which comes from the experience of living, I am truly blessed to have her sister, my aunt, who has taken upon herself the responsibility to lift me up and support me in my mother's stead. When Ziva was four years old, she came home from preschool and wanted to know who her mom, mom, and pop-up were. That's Philly, by the way, for Bubby and Zadie. Clearly, this stemmed from a lesson or discussion or something that happened in school. Jody and I were at a loss. So we started to explain that my mom and Jody's parents had died and were in heaven. Ziva understood that, but insisted that she had to have a mom, mom and pop-up, as if it were a job. So I asked her, I don't know why, but I asked her who she would like to be mom, mom and pop-up. She answered, my Aunt Judy and Uncle Lou. So we called them, and Ziva told them what their new titles were and explained the job that went with it. And then we all cried. My aunt and uncle have lovingly fulfilled those roles in our lives every moment of every day. Before we turn to Yisker, Dr. Mayim Bialik has a piece that was published Monday on Kveller.com. She called it, Everything I'll Never Know Because My Father Died. Her father died four and a half years ago, and she laments all the information and life lessons that are lost because of his death. I get it. Everything I have learned from my mother, I have learned vicariously through others. Everything that is, except for one important life lesson, the meaning of Psalm 103 that we recite as part of Yisker. Enosh kechatsir yamav. Mortals, their days are like those of grass. They bloom like a flower in the field. A wind passes by and it is no more. Its own place no longer knows it. But the steadfast love of God is for all eternity, for those who revere the eternal. And God's beneficence is for children's children. I learned at a very early age this truth of life. Rambam teaches us to seek and grant forgiveness one day before we die. Since we do not know when that day is, he says, we should repent every day. For me, Rambam's teaching is also a comment on the psalm. Since I do not know when I will die, I try to live each day to the fullest, making it a priority, like my mother, to pursue my passions, build meaningful relationships, be present, enjoy, and reflect on the meaning and purpose of my life. The Yamim no Ra'im, these days of awe, are designed for us to learn this lesson. As we discussed on Rosh Hashanah, we cannot know Miyamut, who will live and who will die. But we can take every opportunity to learn about ourselves and our families, collecting and recording the stories of our parents, grandparents, and even our own, beyond the perfunctory family tree projects. We can ask about diaries, keepsakes, photos, and old movies now, not tomorrow. We can record oral histories to gain insight and wisdom into who each one of us is and to some extent reduce future regrets. By having these stories of my mother's life, of which there are far too few, and by her teaching me through her death to cherish every moment of every day of life, my mother Miriam Devorabat Dovber Veeda has contributed deeply to the core of who I am. 
Her influence, her beneficence, have been a blessing for her children and her children's children. That is her Yiskor. Next up is Rabbi Stephen Wise, a Toronto native who received rabbinic ordination from the Hebrew Union College. Rabbi Wise is the chair of the Interfaith Council of Halton, a member of the Halton Police Service Multi-Faith Task Force, and has been the spiritual leader of the Sharei Bethel Congregation in Oakville, Ontario, for the past 15 years. In his sermon, Rabbi Stephen talks about the time his family went on a nationally televised game show and the power and strength that comes from standing shoulder to shoulder with our loved ones. When the email first came in, I thought it was junk. It asked, do you want to be the next season of the Family Feud Canada? But as I read more carefully, it wasn't a scam. It was a legitimate email from the producer looking for families to be on the popular game show filmed at the CBC studios in downtown Toronto. It was spring 2021. The pandemic was entering the second wave. My own family had COVID and we had recovered, but I thought, life's too short. I'm going to apply. But did we have what it takes to get on an actual live game show? Step one, the producers asked us to make an audition video featuring our family and why we deserve to be on the show. Now, this would be especially difficult as we weren't even supposed to see each other during COVID. So we each made an individual video and edited it together. Well, the producers thought we might be a good fit. And so we were asked to do a Zoom call and they wanted us to make a funny way to introduce ourselves. So we wrote a song and it went like this. When I heard the family feud was having a new season, I called upon my family and said we need a reason to gather all together and have so much glee going crazy on television to impress Mr. D. My name's Steven. I'm the captain of the crew. I think you'll soon realize I'm one unique Jew. I'm a rabbi in Oakville, the leader of my flock. But when I pick up my guitar, I sure know how to rock. Well, once again, they thought we were funny. We shared stories, embarrassing moments, anecdotes about traveling together, Shabbat dinners, our careers, and our children. Well, they called us back for a second interview and said, we're going to face off against another family on Zoom. This was now September 2021, and we aced it. I mean, we won every round against the other family, and we were having so much fun. Well, we waited and waited, and a few weeks later, we were accepted for the show, and we're told the filming would be in November. And sure enough, an email said, be there Monday morning, downtown Toronto at 8 a.m. at the CBC Studios. And there we were, on set, lights, studio audience, and Mr. D walked on the set. It was real. We had so much fun. We were always being told, smile and jump up and down and yell, good answer, good answer, as loud as we could with the cameras on us. Well, we played three games, and guess what? We won them all. Of course, we had good and bad answers, but when push came to shove, we succeeded. You know, here's the thing. Even though we won each game, when they broke us into individuals for the bonus round, the magic was gone. We did okay, but separately we were weaker. We couldn't encourage and push and support one another. When I stood alone on that stage during the bonus round, I couldn't get to the elusive threshold of 200 points for the big money. Sure, we were disappointed, but nothing could take away from the fun we had as a family. The lesson I learned is that we're always stronger as a group than as individuals. Our Jewish faith gives us the same message time and time again. The Jewish people walked out of Egypt under the miracles from God, but when it was time for the commandments, God said, 
You stand this day, all of you, before God, your tribal heads, your elders, your officials, every householder in Israel, your children, your wives, even the stranger in your camp. We read this passage every year in Yom Kippur. It reminds us that on the Day of Atonement, we stand together as a community to confess our sins. In fact, all the prayers we say on the Holy Days are in plural. In the Vidui, we sing, Ashamnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu, we have sinned, we have transgressed, we have betrayed, we, we, we. As a group, we are culpable. We as a community have missed the mark, and all of us together express our regret and apologize and ask for forgiveness. God hears our prayers together in this room, in our sanctuary. Our voices blend together and raise up to Adonai. This summer, 2022, is so much different. So many concerts in Ontario, the backlog of performers dying to get back on stage after the pandemic, and people came out by the thousands to hear the music and sing out loud together. You know, those Zoom services early on were sometimes lonely because I could see your faces, but I couldn't hear you singing with me. And now we're back together and our voices meld together and the harmonies lift up the melodies to heaven. Even the basic chord of music consists of three notes. The C major scale is made up of the C, the G, and the E. When combined, they are strong enough to form the triad. And as we read in Kohelet, threefold chord is not easily broken. Think of all the threes, the three musketeers, the three amigos, three men and a baby, three coins and a fountain, the three stooges. It always works in a group, never alone, always together. Thinking back to that first conversation with the producer of The Family Feud, I remember she asked me, why do you want to be on the show? And I said, I've always wanted to be on a game show. It's on my bucket list. But I especially want to be in The Family Feud because we get to compete as a team with my family. Because individuals, we might not be much, but together we are unstoppable. In this new year, may you each find your team, your chevra, your community, and find find strength in the bonds that bring us together. Shana Tova. Our next sermon comes to us from Rabbi Rachel Cole Feingold, a Brooklyn native. Rabbi Rachel was in the first cohort of women ordained at Yeshivat Maharat. She served as the Education and Ritual Director at Anche Shalom B'nai Israel in Chicago and is currently the Associate Rabbi at Congregation Shar Hashemayim in Montreal. Anything more that I could say about her would be unfair to any of the other rabbis. In her sermon, Rabbi Rachel speaks about our relationship to time and how it relates to Yom Kippur. Behavioral economist Keith Chen has discovered that your attitude about the future depends greatly on the language that you speak. Some languages, such as English and French and Hebrew, for example, refer to the future using grammatically different forms of verbs. We say, for example, it will rain tomorrow or I will go. But there are other languages in which we would just say tomorrow it rain or next week I go. These languages have a different way of signifying time. The verbiage is the same for the future tense as it is for the present. Keith Chen collected data about what he calls future-oriented behaviors in various cultures. And amazingly, he discovered that those who speak languages in which the present and the future are grammatically associated actually make better decisions about their future. They tend to save more money, retire with more wealth, and are also less likely to smoke or to be obese. 
He suggests that the way that we speak about the future influences the decisions we make today. When we are too disconnected from our future, we forget that the person we will be tomorrow is the same person we are today. We separate ourselves from our future, and we make decisions that won't bode well for that future person we will become, or we put off for our future self something that we should start to do today in the present. Jewish tradition reminds us that although we cannot see our past or our future, it is God who can. One need look no further than the well-known prayer of Adon Olam, where we sing Vehu Haya, Vehu Hoveh, God was, God is, and God will be. God exists beyond the limits of time. And this is a prominent theme in High Holiday Liturgy as well. That God is beyond time is so central a theme that it appears just before the exodus from Egypt. Moses, as he is standing at the burning bush, knows that he will need to bring God's message to the Israelite nation, and he hesitates. He doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know how to describe the God of Israel. He asks God, who are you? Or to paraphrase a favorite Montreal singer, who shall I say is calling? God replies, I will be what I will be. God actually uses this verb three times in close sequence. The Midrash elaborates that what God was saying to Moses was this, tell them that I am who I was, that I am now, and that I will be in the future. For this reason, the word is written three times. We live in mystery sometimes engulfed in stress and worry about the future. God, however, is beyond time and sees our past, present, and future in a single moment. Our modern Western culture has developed a heightened awareness of the importance of mindfulness. We are encouraged to be in the moment, to live in the present rather than dwell in the past or to worry about the future. This is healthy, and I personally have benefited from yoga and meditation and being in the moment. However, sometimes it would do us well to live in our past a little, to learn from our mistakes, and to make more decisions with our future in mind. Yom Kippur is our chance to do just that. On this day, we remove ourselves from human pleasures and from human limitations. Even as we pound our chest in humility, keenly aware of our smallness in relation to God and the universe, we also elevate ourselves just a little and peek into the infinite. We spend 25 hours disconnected from our usual lives in an effort to be just a little less human and a little more godly. On Yom Kippur, maybe we can get a glimpse of God's sense of time. Maybe we can recognize our present as a culmination of our past days, and as a transition to our future. Gmar Tova. For our final slam, we have Rabbi Philip Scheim. Born in Montreal, Rabbi Scheim is a graduate of the Jewish Theological Seminary. He has served as the international president of the Rabbinical Assembly and spent 40 years as the spiritual leader of Beth David in Toronto. In 2021, he became their rabbi emeritus, and he is currently president of Masorti Olami, a worldwide organization of conservative Judaism. On a personal note, some of my most fruitful thinking was in the pages of the CJN where Rabbi Scheim and I were part of the Rabbi to Rabbi column for many years. In his sermon, Rabbi Scheim talks about the dissonance of knowing you're supposed to be happy about something, even if you don't actually feel it. Here's Rabbi Philip Scheim. 
a rabbinic colleague points out that there are two kinds of stories. There are true stories, and there are true stories that really happened. This is a true story that really happened to me very early in my rabbinic career when I was called upon to officiate at a funeral for a Sophie Greenstein, not her real name. I agreed to do the service, met with the family. The family consisted of an elderly brother and sister. The meeting was not unusual. I spoke with them, took my notes, and prepared for the funeral that would take place the next day. But that evening I received a phone call from the funeral director who said, Rabbi, there's a problem with the Greenstein service. What's the problem? I asked. She's not dead. I asked, does that mean there's no funeral? There is more to the story, but suffice it to say, the family misunderstood a message from the nursing home and erroneously concluded that Sophie had died. It was only after the family had completed all the arrangements that the chapel discovered it was all a mistake. Sophie Greenstein was very much alive. So how did the family react to this new development? Did they jump up and down with joy? Did they shed tears of thanksgiving at the news that their sister was in fact alive? That it had all been a mistake? I don't know for sure, but reports to me indicated that beyond the initial shock, their reaction included dismay that members of the family had flown in for the funeral and that dozens of eggs were now hard-boiled for nothing. They were, it seems, all set for a funeral and now a little put off that their plans were suddenly turned around. You know, over the years, I've often thought about this incident and gradually have become more understanding of the family's lack of exuberance over Sophie's miraculous recovery. The transition from sad to happy is never easy, especially since we know that happiness tends to have a limited lifespan. Look, our Torah reading, which centers on Rosh Hashanah, on the life of Abraham, Avram Avinu, consists of two consecutive chapters in Genesis. On the first day, we read the 21st chapter, and on the second day, the 22nd. Chapter 21 speaks of the birth of Isaac and his weaning. We read, Vayas Avraham mishtegadol biyom higamel et Yitzchak. Abraham held a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. That was verse 8 of the 21st chapter of Genesis. In verse 8, Abraham and Sarah are allowed a moment of happiness, of celebration. But the very next verse tells a very different story. Sarah notices the son of her handmaid, Hagar, Ishmael, Mitzachek. He's playing, mocking, doing idolatry. We're not sure what Mitzachek means. But whatever it means, Abraham is compelled first by Sarah, then by God, to expel Hagar and Ishmael. 
The matter distressed Abraham greatly, we're told. Abraham's celebration barely makes it through a single pasuk, a single verse. So short-lived is his joy that we begin to understand better what happened in chapter 22, our second day reading, when God commanded that Abraham bring Isaac, his only son left in his care, to the altar of Moriah for sacrifice. We begin to understand Abraham's silence, his lack of protest at this seemingly horrific mitzvah because he's learned through the ancient school of hard knocks that happiness is fleeting, that nachas is short-lived. Even when God commanded of him the obliteration of any future, any posterity, Abraham was resigned, hiding his undeniable brokenness behind a mask of faith. Even in the moment of reprieve, when the angel made it clear that God did not want Abraham to sacrifice his son, there's no celebration, no hallel, no songs of praise, no rejoicing. Abraham burned once too often by life, was no longer seduced by Simcha. Rather, it would seem, he waited for the acts of tragedy once again to fall. Yes, happiness is fleeting. Do we Jews struggle with happiness? We sure do. Is that why we wish each other today Shana Tova, a good year, and not Happy New Year? With apologies to greeting card manufacturers who get it wrong. Look, we've all seen examples of those who endured terrible hardships in the early years. Among them survivors of the Shoah, and those who may have suffered less than their fellow Jews in Europe, but nonetheless struggled during the Depression years. We've seen examples of many who grew up in those challenging times, who later achieved success and were able to meet all of their needs and then some, but who still would hoard food, take home the rolls from the restaurant breadbasket because of that deeply internalized childhood memory of hunger and deprivation. Those of us fortunate enough to have been raised in better times would reference the depression mentality, sometimes in too dismissive a fashion. But the inability to escape the pain of the past, such as that experienced by Avraham, it's real, with solid foundation in the pages of our long and difficult history. It's true to be sure that we have undergone some very dark moments in history. No doubt our fear for future was reality-based more than once in history. But it's not by chance that we have endured. With our powerful and meaningful traditions and practices and through our own hard-learned resilience and our dedication to the values of freedom and human dignity, we've made it to this moment, heads held up high. So how do we as a people find that measure of happiness, of self-assuredness, to enable optimism and hope to overcome darkness and fear? And is it even fair to ask the question today when, of course, we're not problem-free? As the pandemic has yet to leave us, as anti-Semitism has far from vanished from our midst, as Israel haters are anything but silent, as climate changes and war and political upheaval abound, as religious and political extremism threaten our collective sanity and social underpinnings, can we even dare to be optimistic? 
Is not optimism with all the issues we confront shorthand for insanity? Perhaps yes. Maybe it is borderline insanity for Jews living today to be optimistic about our future. But look, that we are still here today does open the door for a significant measure of optimism and hope. In his classic work, Shevet Yehuda, the 16th century Spanish-Jewish historian Shlomo Ibn Virga told of a ship of Jews fleeing Spain following the expulsion edict of 1492. The ship became infested with a deadly plague. The captain put the surviving passengers ashore at some unknown place. One man, having suffered the loss of his entire family alone, afraid, turned to his maker with the following words, God, you've done so much to make me abandon my faith, but let me assure you of one thing, Yehudi Aniva Yehudi I am a Jew and a Jew I remain. And neither the sufferings brought upon me nor any that I'm yet to face will do anything to shake my faith in you. Go 450 years later in Jewish history to a short prayer composed by a boy named Shmuel, which he recited shortly after the death camps were liberated on the occasion of his becoming bar mitzvah. Shmuel and his sister survived. Their parents did not. These were his words. Ich bet, as der Taten und die Mama schoin herunter von Himmel und sehen, as ihr Sohn wird bar mitzvah heint. I pray that my mother and father may look down from heaven and see that their son is bar mitzvah today. And may they know that my sister and I, sein geblieben gute Jeden, we've remained good Jews. Und wir wollen immer azoi bleiben. And we will always remain so. In this sacred season, at the outset of another new year, may the promise of tomorrow outweigh the fears, the anxieties, the challenges that confront us today. At funerals, we tend to wish each other we simchas. May we meet at simchas, at happy occasions. That wish is as appropriate as it is timely. Yes, in the year just begun, Oiv Simchas, may happiness overcome sadness, laughter, tears. Look, as long as we are able to reaffirm, as did two courageous Jews separated by almost five centuries of history, may we today reaffirm that Yehudi Ani Yehudi that we remain firm in our Jewish identity, and that that our connection with our peoplehood, our heritage will forever be part of us. Then to be sure, we can face the year ahead and every year thereafter with optimism, with hope, with courage. Can you hear And now it's time for our Nachas. David wasn't able to be here, um, but he wanted to make sure that he got the first nachas, um, and he sent me his nachas in advance, and he said um, he wanted to send a very special happy birthday to Risa, his mom, um, whose birthday it is today, and so when, the day we are recording. So happy birthday from Bonjour Chai, um, and that's David's nachas. Alana, what's your nachas? So uh, long-time listeners of the show might be a little surprised at this one, because I think you all know my opinions about 
Jewish Hallmark movies. However, <laughs> oh, no. I just wanted to... <laughs> no, no, I haven't seen this. But uh, there, there is a, an actress that I really, really like. Um, Yael Groblas, who famously uh, played the villainous who turns less villainous character on uh, the, the fun uh, melodramatic show Jane the Virgin. Um, she's uh, Israeli, now lives in the States, and she is going to be in the latest Hallmark Hanukkah movie called Hanukkah on Rye, which is about two um, uh, competing Jewish delis. Um, and uh, Feller put an article about it saying that it sounds dot 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 good question mark about these two meddling bubbies and there's like a matchmaker element where they they have like a shidduch so it seems like hallmark is like taking the feedback trying to get it actually more jewish moving away from the let's convert all the let's, jews let's make sure that jesus is in the, the hanukkah story all the time every year um yeah. Yeah, so, so there's something there but like they couldn't get anything l- more cliche than oh two jewish it's not just one jewish deli let's put two jewish delis in there and they're of course they're arguing with each other this is like well i mean that that's kind of the whole thing in hallmark right it's like there's like the Christmas store and then like the rival store, the bakeries. I have to audition for some of this stuff sometimes. It's the only reason that I know it. Um, <laughs> so, the, you know, I don't know if I'm going to watch it, but I really like that actor. So, you know what? Maybe uh, if that's your thing, this might be a good one because she's she's a, she's good at what she does. Yeah, I, there better be latkes in there. And I mean, no, I mean, like Jewish deli, the right, only thing I've nothing Hanukkah. to do with Hanukkah other than maybe like Jewish delis have latkes, you know, because it's a Jewish food. But uh, OK, oh, there you go. Uh, I don't know. I am uh, I'm going to await. Uh, I'm going to pretend that um, this is a Rosh Hashanah and this movie is uh, am I if I'm being asked to put it in the book of life and the book of death, I will wait till Yom Kippur. <laughs> And uh, well, not I will wait till I see it and and and, and then judge it. I, I think you know what I will say about this movie in advance. Oh, I don't. I know what I'm going to say about it, but you but, know. Yeah. Avi, okay, Avi, what's, what's my nachas? I'm going to skip ahead um, from Yom Kippur right into Sukkot. Um, there was a really cool project. I mean, because you know what? If you're building a sukkah, you're thinking like weeks already ago. I'm like, do I have all the stuff that I need from last year? What do I have to go to Home Depot for? It's front of mind. It's a big deal. Um, there was a project uh, came out in, 20, in 2010 in New York called Sukkah City. Um, by Reboot. Um, and they basically got a bunch of architecture students and architects to um, take the laws of sukkah and apply them and design a modern uh, looking sukkah. Like use all of these things. That's cool. Uh, Really, really cool. So um, it happened 12 years ago. It's happened in other cities since. It actually happened in Toronto a few years ago. Um, there are resources on Reboot for it in the past. There was a documentary that was actually produced about it, and it's worth checking out. Um, but I think that some of those resources and looking at them and looking at some of these really amazing sukkahs um, that are completely halakhically kosher, um, but are incredibly modern and I would never be able to build these things because they're just so beautiful. Um, that are, are really inspiring to, to get into you into the sukkah thinking mode. So, um, definitely check out sukkah city, um, and the, the documentary and all the resources that they have to help you get in the sukkah's mood, sukkah city, 
um, on Reboot. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending October 1st, Shabbat Parashat Vayelach. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It's one of the best ways we get new listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm Milana Zakon. <laughs>